Hello and welcome to the podcast for Hurston on Tennessee Family Law. I'm K.O. Hurston, a family law attorney in Knoxville. This episode of the podcast will introduce many of you to a form of alternative dispute resolution that is becoming more and more popular in family law cases. This process is called collaborative divorce. My guests on this episode are two of my colleagues here in Knoxville who handle collaborative divorces and who, along with me and some other colleagues, founded our local practice group called the East Tennessee Collaborative Alliance. Heidi Wegren is a Knoxville lawyer whose practice is focused on family law. She's been practicing law for 23 years and says anywhere from 10 to 20% of her practice involves collaborative divorces. My other guest, Jackie Kittrell, has been practicing law for 29 years. She's been the executive director of the Community Mediation Center for the past 13 years. We started our conversation with a brief explanation of what the Community Mediation Center does. Tell us a little bit, what does the Community Mediation Center do? Well, What's its function? the Community Mediation Center is um, this amazing organization that has been around for, I think, over 25 years now. It started out as a collaboration between the Bar Association and the law school and the courts to help people get divorced by mediating their case and then turning it over to legal aid when they had low income. And it has turned into uh, the kind of mediation center that takes people regardless of their ability to pay. So we do have people of modest means as well as indigent, low-income, fixed-income people. And we do a kind of mediation that is, um, interestingly, a lot like collaborative divorce work in that you have people sitting in the same room talking together, being helped by a pair of mediators who act as a team. And when there is a need for legal advice, when there is a need for any other kind of homework to be done, the mediators take a break and assign homework, and then people come back and have their information together, and they can make a self-determined agreement. We handle probably about a thousand referrals a year, probably about seven or eight hundred mediations a year. What got you interested in collaborative divorce? I think I got interested in collaborative divorce out of an interest in mediation. I saw a lot of similarities, almost like they're siblings, sibling professions, but I also am myself a child of divorce. Um, My parents got divorced when I was about 30, and so I didn't have childhood, uh, young childhood issues, but I think children respond badly to their parents getting divorced no matter when that is. And And I saw a lot of family cases unfold at juvenile court, in divorce court, in my professional experiences, and just never saw a good outcome even when there was a settlement. So I was attracted to the idea of having a really good kind of settlement procedure that would 
be like mediation, but would have the advantage of having attorneys who were very clear about what their role was and, and that they wouldn't blow the case up or slam their hand down on the table and say, see you in court if you won't do exactly right. what we say. So I was very interested in a facilitative, interest-based negotiation process. Heidi, I'm going to ask you the same question. What got you interested in it? Like Jackie, I also have personal experience with divorce. And then in addition to that, as a, uh, an attorney practicing in the family law area, I saw both on the divorce side of things, the spouses um, divorcing, and the uh, child advocacy work that I did, the, the dependence and neglect and post-custody divorce proceedings, the toll that divorce takes on the entire family, on the children, on, and looking for, you know, forward thinking what it's going to look like once this family's divorced and they have young children that they have to raise for years, um, what, what were some other options? Because um, at the time of my divorce and with, you know, back up until 2010 when I was trained in collaborative, there really wasn't an, a, any other choice besides going through mediation, hopefully reaching an agreement doing, or doing a settlement conference or litigating. And so um, that's what attracted me to collaborative. Just an alternative to the traditional way of getting divorced. Right. Just a more peaceful resolution, something that was more family friendly, something that would allow um, families to survive the divorce process and let that... Let, let there be a new normal and let them, let them go on with their lives um, in a much less adversarial and combative way. Jackie, for, for those who aren't familiar with the traditional way of getting divorced, not the collaborative approach, but the, the customary way historically, um, for those who aren't familiar with that, walk us through what a traditional divorce process looks like. Well, I guess it's, it varies, um, but the, the traditional divorce is one where the courthouse always looms rather large in the process, and it's driven by the idea of going to court and hashing out your problems in front of a judge um, by argument, and, and it's driven by attorneys who represent their clients zealously and tactically, so they are thinking up ways to get the better of the other party typically begins with one person deciding to get a divorce and going to an attorney and filing for divorce and having the other party served. Um, sometimes both parties know that they're going to get a divorce and they still do it like that because that's the way those traditional divorces start. One person takes the lead and creates a complaint and files it in court and and off they go. The attorneys typically meet a lot, talk a lot, talk back to their clients and then come together and talk together and move the case forward that way. There is a, a need for what we would call formal discovery which is answering questions under oath in a deposition, answering questions on paper, in interrogatories, producing lots of documents to show what assets there are in the marriage or what debts there are in the marriage, and everything well-documented, put into files, and then 
more proposals flow back and forth between the attorneys. If they can't resolve something, if there isn't, if there is a, a disagreement about what this person wants versus what that person wants, then they use mediation. And mediation becomes, as my colleague Adam Cordover says, an event. It's a, <laughs> it's a thing that you do when you can't work out things between counsel and by the judge making a ruling every now and again. So everything proceeds towards settlement. And I think what I've heard is, you know, 95% of divorces that are filed are settled before trial, but it's kind of how it's settled and when it's settled that makes a big difference between the traditional settlement of divorce and collaborative settlement of divorce. And in those cases that don't settle, you're talking about a contested trial where each lawyer's job is to essentially beat the other party, and uh, however that's defined, right. uh, and never mind the hurt feelings that come out of that, but the cost of a trial, of really preparing for a trial and actually getting through a trial, it is exorbitant. It, it is, is exorbitant. It is not an inexpensive endeavor. So the traditional way, if cases, you know, we do proceed towards settlement, and if they get resolved that way, then great. But that's still not an inexpensive process. But if it goes beyond that and actually to trial, it can be, you're talking, well, not hypothetically, it's easily tens and tens of thousands of dollars to to try a case. Yeah. And people rarely in a traditional divorce settled or or at trial, rarely do they sit down and talk together. Um, They are discouraged from doing that by their attorneys. The courtroom discourages people from doing that because of the formality. And people have to sit there and hear not just their soon-to-be ex-spouse talk badly about them, but the attorney of their soon-to-be ex-spouse talk badly about them in public um, and it's very searing. I think it's, um, it's something that people remember and hold on to and possibly experience PTSD over. Mm-hmm. And so it makes the continuation of the family harder. It's something that, uh, I mean, we, we believe in the collaborative practice that the family continues. It just continues in a different shape and form and the children continue being the children of both parents, usually. And so uh, that also is damaged by that traditional process choice of right. using separate rooms, separate conversations, positions, you know, given to the other side and not a conversation, not a problem-solving conversation. Well, and oftentimes it, it doesn't end, even if you have a trial and the judge gives you a ruling, it doesn't end there. There can be appeals, and particularly if you have cases with children or in cases involving alimony, the, all, that, all those rulings are modifiable down the road. And so I would say in our practice here, at least 40% of our practice is post-divorce modifications. I mean, we are in court dealing with cases that were three or four years old, and now something's changed or whatever, and there's a disagreement, and and we're going back to court once again. And I don't know if that's 
if I don't know what the numbers, what the data shows in terms of the likelihood of that happening after a collaborative divorce versus after a contested divorce where you do have a tendency to leave with hurt feelings mm -hmm. and uh, to some extent. And I will also add that after a contested trial, it's very rare that either party walks out of the courtroom completely satisfied with the outcome. Typically, judges try to sort of split the baby and give you a little, give this one a little bit of what they want, give that one a little bit of what they want. And so oftentimes judges perceive that I must have made a good ruling if both sides are mad at me. That's right. That's what I've heard too. <laughs> yeah. A good divorce is when no one's happy. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, that's right. The holy grail of, of a good mediation or a good collaborative process is what I would call a durable agreement. And I think the, the statistics involving mediation show that the most durable agreements come when the parties are talking to one another. The agreement incorporates their own words. They've agreed to those words. Um, it's They're not dealing with a positional bargaining so much. You can't avoid that completely sometimes, but um, where they're joining their ideas together and coming up with something that maybe neither one of them thought about initially or wouldn't have thought about if they didn't talk together. So Heidi, what is a collaborative divorce? How is it different from what Jackie just explained was the traditional, you know, customary way that we've done things for 100 years? Um, this new process has come about. So first start with what is it and how is it different? Right. A collaborative divorce is uh, an interdisciplinary team approach is the way I like to, to best define it and explain it to uh, potential clients and people that ask, ask about it. So it's an interdisciplinary team approach, which means that you know, a, a typical divorce is going to have an emotional divorce, a financial divorce, and a legal divorce. And so if you only address one of those three in the divorce process, um, which is typically the legal divorce by hiring an attorney, uh, then there's a lot of room there to go off on tangents when, with the emotional triggers that, that are always or almost always going to be involved in a divorce, and of course the financial divorce. So with collaborative, it's uh, a trained team. They're all trained in collaborative practice of law. They're all trained in mediation. So the, the team members are um, licensed mental health professionals, and those are um, referred to oftentimes as coaches. And so you typically have at least one coach on the team. Like you a have divorce coach? Divorce coach, yes. Okay. Divorce coach. And then you typically have at least one divorce coach that would represent, as a coach, both parties. Uh, there are other jurisdictions and other models of the collaborative practice. That's the typical Knoxville model um, that we've been, been using so far. In other states, they uh, will oftentimes use a divorce coach for each party. Um, if needed. There's also a room for a child specialist, which should also be, be a trained, licensed mental health practitioner that could fill that role in, in the event that you needed someone to work with the co-parenting and, and putting together a permanent parenting plan. So also in, involved in the team is a financial neutral, and that's um, typically someone who is a certified divorce financial analyst and has also taken the collaborative training and is also trained in mediation. So those are the professionals that, that come together to form the collaborative team. What, what are they there to do and what is their function in the, in the context of 
you know, a, a contest, at this point, a contested divorce. Right. Absolutely. They, they are neutral. And what, what happens in a collaborative divorce case is that the parties come together with their attorneys and they sign um, a document. Uh, they actually enter into an agreement prior to entering into the collaborative process that says that they um, will not litigate that this case is, is going to be handled as a collaborative case and that, that it will be non-adversarial and that litigation is not an option. So in the event that, 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 that they don't go forward with the collaborative case, um, all of the professionals involved in the case would have to withdraw. And so you come into the, into the collaborative case with that mentality. So that also pertains to the coach is a, a neutral. That person um, is not there to advocate for one spouse or the other. They are there to really... Uh, kind of head up the team, uh, really run the process, meet with both of the parties, identify the emotional triggers, the things that, that like I said before, about addressing the emotional divorce, and kind of what, what the case looks like, and remain neutral. Same with the financial neutral. Uh, the financial neutral will also meet with both parties, either individually or together, and um, process through all of their financial documents, all of their, um, it's, so the assets and liabilities and, and they're, they're the ones that help them gather all that and, and process it and figure out what's there. Exactly. What we- there's, there's a um, full disclosure clause as well uh, with the, the collaborative, um, agreement that says the parties will, will fully discru- disclose all of their financial information. So it's, it's a, not a discovery process that is associated with the typical divorce where you'll have depositions and interrogatories and requests for financial documents. It's all full disclosure and um, completely transparent. So every, everyone is, is, again, in agreement that all of that information will be provided to the financial neutral who will then process that and, and work with the couple and the team. So in, in trying to figure out how it's different from a normal divorce, like how, as a lawyer, how do you approach a collaborative divorce differently than you approach, you know, a traditional divorce? With a collaborative divorce, it, there's a screening process that is involved with whether you're approaching it as the attorney um, or whether you're the mental health professional or a financial neutral. And it's to determine that the, that the spouses, the, the parties, um, are actually good candidates for a collaborative process. Because this is, again, it's a process that is entered into by agreement. It, it's a peaceful resolution. You know, that's not necessarily the right divorce for everyone, um, but it is oftentimes a very good option um, as long as there's full understanding, full disclosure, and so that's typically the way I would start a case is, is to work through. And there are, there are various screening methods that each profession professional uses to, to you know, identify those, those clients that would, would be good candidates for the collaborative process. Jackie, let me ask you um, really the same question. What's the different approach that you take as a lawyer mm-hmm. to working on a collaborative divorce uh, as opposed to the traditional, you know, litigate this in court divorce? I think uh, in both instances, the lawyer is fully advocating for their client. In the courtroom litigation-driven divorce, that attorney, if they're good, are, is always going to have their eye on the possibility that this could end up in front of a judge with the judge weighing arguments, weighing facts, needing proof to to reach a resolution. And so they're going to have to prepare that way. 
And, you know, many times clients say, why is this divorce so expensive? Well, it's because all of those preparations have to be made, even if it looks like it's maybe kind of going to settle. Um, the, the lawyer owes that obligation to their client to prepare for what if it doesn't. In the collaborative divorce, the lawyer is not a neutral, is totally on their client's side, but the goal is agreement, and the goal is a durable, collaboratively reached agreement. The duties of the lawyer, each lawyer, is to work with the team, share information appropriately. The collaborative attorney still has a duty of confidentiality with their own client, so there's a step in there about making sure that before the collaborative lawyer shares something that they have their client's permission or their client is in the room right. to share it themselves. Um, and the lawyer is helping guide that process. The other professionals share by also by agreement, um, knowing that they aren't representing or advocating for an, an individual client. So the team can kind of function in a sharing way. And much of it is done in the same room with everybody around the table. Sometimes there are smaller groupings of professionals. And this is also an interesting feature of the collaborative process that just isn't there usually in a, in a contested divorce. Um, even with very friendly attorneys and very civil behavior, which is that we always have a professionals-only meeting after we've had a, a team meeting with the clients involved, just to debrief, just to kind of look at each other and say, how did that go? Did that go well? What could we have done better? The coach is there. The divorce coach is amazing in that they are skilled at helping the professionals see when things are coming off the rails or when a client is getting antsy or when even two counsel are getting antsy with each other. So it, it helps everyone on the team kind of keep aware of the, the kind of conflict that is going on. As we all know, conflict isn't absent in a peaceful process. It's just a different kind of conflict. And so we have to manage that conflict in the collaborative process, too. And so a, a lawyer representing someone in a collaborative divorce, the, the end goal for that lawyer is to reach a settlement if it can be reached. Correct. And if settlement is not reached, then what happens? If settlement is not reached and the parties are still interested in staying in the process, they can go to the divorce coach and talk and kind of talk over some of the hidden um, issues that are barriers to settlement. Um, it could be that there's a piece of information about a piece of property or a future need that someone is afraid of. In my experience, the word alimony comes up in any divorce and that strikes fear in people's hearts. Um, so sometimes it's just like getting a budget done to either 
reveal what needs there are in the future or to say, hey, wait a minute, I thought I would need alimony, now I don't, I know I don't need alimony. So the team is trying to take away the barriers to settlement and instead of just saying, okay, we're done, they didn't get an agreement, you kind of keep trying as long as it's reasonable to do that. Knowing that in a collaborative divorce process, like Heidi said, it can, because it's a voluntarily entered into process, one party, or sometimes a professional, can just say, enough, this is done, and not want to waste any more time or money. Um, The parties are are very invested in this process because of of, uh, having to look forward to hiring new attorneys and you know getting new evidence in place and so there usually is a lot of willingness to stay in the process as long as it's working right and that's what I was trying to get at if if for some reason it doesn't get resolved that way then they hire new attorneys to basically go through the traditional approach so if it basically this is sort of plan a and if for whatever reason plan A doesn't work out, then plan B would be the courthouse, which is always going to be there. Right. And that that's the same as in any alternative dispute resolution process. Um, the parties can always go to court. But in the collaborative process, they have kind of been screened into it. So we're not just representing that, you know, every human being who's getting a divorce should should use collaborative when they choose it and when they are screened into it, there's a really good chance that they will finish in a collaborative way. Um, Mediation is not so much screened as just tried. And so people try mediation. If they don't get an agreement, they go off to court to ask the judge to decide. In a collaborative process, the investment is a little steeper. And so people really do stick with it longer. And the, the one or two failures, collaborative failures that I've experienced, I think either had some signals early on that, that, that they might not have been best for collaborative, or they, they did settle finally, but they just needed to feel like they had said their piece in a, in a litigation context. So Heidi, are there certain types of people that are best suited for a collaborative approach? Um, you know, if people listening to this, how will they know if this is something that they're well suited for or not? Typically, the client that comes to me is looking for a peaceful alternative to divorce. They they typically they know that 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 they're not in agreement. They know that it's not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult to go through the process of getting divorced. So by no means are collaborative cases easy cases, but typically the the parties come to the table saying that for whatever reason, either they run a business together that's going to go on and it's going to live on past divorce, or um, usually it's children. They have have young children, older children. They realize there's going to be high school graduations, college graduations, potentially marriages, you know, a multitude of family events that they're going to have to go forward with. And they don't want to have a divorce cause, you know, we've all seen those events where, you know, former spouses can't even be in the same room together. They can't, Mm -hmm. they can't come around the same table. There has to be separate celebrations for everyone. So typically the, the client that comes 
to, to me and meets to learn more about collaborative is looking for something that's going to last, something that's what, as Jackie has referred to, as a durable agreement, something that they can both put their, their stamp of approval on and, and, and go forward in a peaceful manner. And not have to make a scene at the wedding or the graduation. They, they, they have seen that and said, I, I don't want any part of that. That's, I want to try to avoid that if I can. Exactly. That, that's okay. not pretty. And, that's, and, and ultimately also expense. And we've talked about the cost of, of litigation. And that's, like you commented, tens and tens of thousands of Easily. dollars if you go to trial. The other option is to go that, down that path where you're still adversarial you still gather all of the information through your your typical discovery process. It all feels very litigious. It all feels very accusatory. There's just, you know, it's just, that's the process. And typically those cases settle, but there's a lot of damage that happened. Um, and Jackie referred to this as well in between. The, the, a lot of times the client comes to the table realizing that this is not necessarily a less expensive, dollar-wise, less expensive process to going through the traditional litigation up to the point of settlement, but it's far less expensive on the emotional side in, of the equation. And they realize that, that it's a much more attractive alternative. Do you notice that people that are coming and that are interested in collaborative divorce have been divorced before, have been through a traditional divorce before, and have sort of lived that damage and want to avoid that again? Or is that something you've observed or no? Typically, I've observed if they haven't been through divorce themselves, they've they've either witnessed a family member, a good friend, you know, someone has been through kind of what you know, what they will refer to all the all the typical the, you know the war you know in in, in just a right. a um, yeah really adversarial. There and there is I think anyone getting a divorce has a lot of fear of the unknown, um, and they see the collaborative process as less fearful. They are sort of feel like they're being taken care of in a way that's very transparent and where they will know exactly what their spouse knows. And there won't be any secrets kept between the parties, that they'll just put everything out there on the table, um, including their fears, what they need, what they want, and, and just have a negotiation that's based on transparency. So you all have talked about the advantages being a less contentious process, in some cases, in many cases, less expensive, a more durable agreement, it's more lasting because it was reached in, in this way as opposed to imposed on you by a third party, the judge. Are there any other advantages to the collaborative process that we haven't talked about? Well, one is a feeling of doing something that's quite horrible, getting divorced, but with a certain dignity and a certain um, sense of self-respect and, as Heidi had said, uh, respect of the other person enough so that you can see them at family events and maybe even dance together at your child's wedding. So there is a, a, a sense of humanity and dignity about it that I think is not built into the other processes. The collaborative process builds this in as an intentional value and goal. So um, if it happens with the other processes, it's usually luck. And just because you've got a great attorney or a great mediator or a great judge, but you can't always count on those things. 
in, in, unless it's intentionally built in. Well, and it, that's not only important for the parties going through that, but how important is that for their children, particularly in cases where you have children? Uh, the research shows overwhelmingly that parental conflict is the most harmful thing that you can do to a child for them to witness it, even indirectly. And so anything that leads parents to have a more cooperative relationship, because they are the two parents, they're going to have to cooperate in raising these kids in particular. That's what I really think is one of the, the big advantages of it is that it creates a greater likelihood of cooperative co-parenting going forward. It's much more likely to happen if you avoid the process where, as in a traditional divorce setting, where I'm trying to tear that party down, tear the other party down, throw mud at them, try to paint them uh, in the worst light possible. That is, I mean, time can heal those wounds, but in the process, the children sometimes suffer as a result. You still have a grudge, and some people can't let that go. Well, right, and even in in a a mediation context where people are sitting down and trying to problem solve, it's almost like when one person proposes something, the other person automatically thinks, why are they doing that? There must be some ulterior reason. Um, I'm just not going to agree because of that. So the whole process has this kind of overarching suspicion um, that people feel and the collaborative process really tries to make that not the case and and have this overarching feel of civility and at the very best trusting and respect and I'll add to that and really um, pick up where you left off as well KO on on the the effect on the children and the the couple's ability to communicate and, and move forward in life is that I, I feel the collaborative team offers an opportunity for the various professionals to come together and model that behavior. And we start the conversation mm-hmm. during the collaborative process. So, you know, obviously when they're getting divorced, there's a, a very strong <laughs> high likelihood that a lot of those communication skills have broken down their ability right. to um, communicate and move forward in it. And really in any aspect of, of their, their marriage. And, and so the, the positive thing about the collaborative process is you model that behavior, you allow them to start the conversation, they learn how to communicate. And that's been a lot of the feedback is that going forward, they're able to, you know, not end up back in court on the post-divorce modifications because children, you know, they grow up, they, their, their age, their activities, their, the co-parenting needs change. And they have been given the tools and the skills to know how to come by agreement and really make those modifications all on their own, or they always have the option to come back and do a collaborative modification, which again, they understand that, that they can come back to the collaborative process even for post-divorce modifications. In all the years that the two of you have been doing collaborative divorce, uh, what have you observed with respect to you know its popularity? Is this a growing approach? Um, the collaborative uh, process has really st- really taken off and is starting to grow in the Knoxville area. Statewide, it's been around for probably about 10 years. There's uh, three practice groups. There's a, a group in Memphis, there's one in Middle Tennessee in Nashville, and then our practice group started about two and a half years ago here in Knoxville. So it has really taken off. We have uh, about 30 professionals in our group, and the word is getting out. There's a lot of interest. I'm getting um, a lot more inquiries, and, and people are learning that there is another option. Last fall, in November, the Supreme Court accepted a petition for a collaborative rule of court. So it would 
if it if it gets passed, it will end up being, we think, Rule 53, but it's still in discussion. There's been some comment. So far, the Tennessee Bar Association is who introduced it. Uh, the Knoxville Bar Association commented favorably on it, and the Board of Professional Responsibility commented favorably on it. And I think the other bars have weighed in as well. Uh, but that's that shows me uh, that there is a an advance of the profession and that there's a need for a court rule so that judges all over the state will understand it and attorneys and clients will understand what the ground rules are. Well, that, that's definitely an objective sign that it's taking off yeah. because if the Tennessee Supreme Court says we need to have a rule judges have to follow, lawyers have to follow, that governs this process, that's really, you can't deny that, that, that they're doing that because the process is becoming more popular and it's being used more and more, and they want to make sure that there's some uniformity to the way that it's handled. So uh, I think that's very much an objective manifestation of the growing popularity of collaborative practice in Tennessee. We have in our East Tennessee Collaborative Alliance, which is our local practice group, we have now I think 20 attorneys and maybe eight or nine other professionals who have been collaboratively trained and are holding themselves out as ready to take cases. I think there's about those numbers in Nashville too, and I'm not sure of Memphis, but probably about the same is what we've been told anyway. So if someone's listening to this and they want to read more about collaborative divorce and and make decisions as to whether it's something they're interested in there that they want to pursue, where can they go on the internet to find out more about this? They can go to our local practice group site. We have some information and links on that site. There's also a wonderful... Just so we let me interrupt... The local practice group is the East Tennessee Collaborative Alliance. East Tennessee Collaborative Alliance. And the website is easttennesseecollaborative.com. So they can go there and look at information for all the different professionals and see who is practicing, read the general information about it. There's also a site that's called the International Academy of Collaborative Professionals, and that is collaborativepractice.com. That is a very full site uh, with lots of information for the public, directories of attorneys everywhere. And it also allows you to see how widespread the practice is in the United States and worldwide. I think almost every state in our great nation has collaborative practice groups, and at least 12 or 15 have collaborative rules or collaborative statutes that govern them. And so in in this state, we've got three big cities, Memphis, Nashville, and Knoxville, and each of those cities has its own practice group for people who've been trained in collaborative practice. So you're talking lawyers, financial professionals, divorce coaches, mental health professionals, all of whom have been trained in collaborative. And so if someone is looking for a lawyer or looking to start that process with a divorce coach or wherever, there are groups in Memphis, Nashville, and Knoxville. And the one in Knoxville is the East Tennessee Collaborative Alliance, which all three of us are founding members of. So, so we are going to plug our own our own group first. Right. And, and on our website, you can go and, and there's um, bios of all of the, the various professionals and information as to how to get in touch with them, links to, to connect with them. So it's a pretty um, easy process. 
And if, if there are any attorneys out there that are interested in getting trained, there's, there's always training happening somewhere. I want to thank Jackie and Heidi for sharing their perspectives on the growing practice of collaborative divorce in Tennessee. If nothing else, I hope this encourages you to learn more about this approach so you can consider it for yourself if you're going through a divorce or for your clients if you work with people going through a divorce. If you want to learn more about collaborative divorce to see if it might be the right approach for you or your clients, a good place to start would be the website for our practice group here in East Tennessee the East Tennessee Collaborative Alliance. You can find the website at easttennesseecollaborative.com. That's all one word, easttennesseecollaborative.com. Or just Google East Tennessee Collaborative Alliance. There's also a practice group in Nashville called the Middle Tennessee Collaborative Alliance. Their website is mtcollab.com. That's mtcollab.com. If you're in West Tennessee, There's also a practice group in Memphis called the Memphis Collaborative Alliance, and their website is memphiscollaborative.com. Again, it's all one word, memphiscollaborative.com. Lastly, you can find a lot of good information about collaborative divorce at the website for the International Academy of Collaborative Professionals, found at collaborativepractice.com. I'm K.O. Hurston. Thanks for listening.